Welcome to the Conscious Conversations podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Nick Paladino King. And I'm Nitin Gerg. We are transformational coaches and yogis from the San Francisco Bay Area. And this is a podcast for people looking to take their lives to the next level. Through these conversations, we aim to raise the consciousness of our lives, the lives of our listeners, and the wholeness. So get ready to join us on this great adventure of life by taking a moment to settle in, become fully present in this moment, and see where the journey takes you next. Get ready for a fascinating and deep conversation with uh, my very own professor from San Jose State University, Professor Anand Vadya, uh, who teaches philosophy there. Uh, and his work really centers around uh, helping establish the missing connections between Eastern and Western philosophy and how they're not really separate. And, you know, they really have very core tenets that anchor on each other and could, and could frankly build on each other to elevate our own understanding for how we view things as separate or one together in the world and how that could help us actually alleviate suffering in our own lives and frankly beyond suffering to, uh, to actually drive greater understanding uh, for everything that's happening around us uh, in our lives, at work, and beyond. So dive in. Powerful conversation. So welcome to the, the to Conscious Conversations, Professor Anand. I always say professor because you were a professor and I still, every time I see you, I'm just like, I'm talking to Professor Anand, you know, who, and he taught me so much about philosophy. So um, I always actually remember as some of the, the classes that I've been in with you as actually, frankly, the foundations of how I applied thinking and critical thinking to life. Um, and even um, afterwards, just like how I thought about philosophy and consciousness and, you know, uh, developing, you know, skills for self and furthering, just continuing that personal human evolution. So your classes were one of the the first beginnings for me for that. So I'm super excited to, and stoked to have you, you on here. Um, I'll pass it to you, on, uh, Professor. You know, if, if there's anything you want to share in terms of just helping set the stage, helping folks understand who you are, the work you're involved with today. Um, and and also, if you have a practice, sometimes we actually share a practice at the beginning of this, which is, you know, if there's anything you use to ground yourselves uh, or, frankly, maybe even ground your audience, because I know you do a lot of presentations, so we'd love to learn that. Okay. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, Nick and Nitin. I like the rhyme, Nick and Nitin. <laughs> it works well. Uh, thank you for having me on your podcast, and I look forward to our conversation. And um, yeah, Nitin, it's good to catch up with you and see you in this context after so many years. I, I, I have like lots of students, but I definitely remember vividly you being one of my students from back in the day. And so it's, it's, it's nice to catch you in this context. So yeah, so I'm Anand J. Prakash Vaidya. I'm a professor of philosophy at San Jose State University, and I've been teaching there for about 17 years. And my total time studying and teaching philosophy is now approaching 22, 23 years. I've been doing this for a while, and I run an institute sometimes for cross-cultural and multidisciplinary philosophy, where the purpose of the institute is to learn philosophy from different traditions and cultures and to bring them together so that they can talk with one another to have a more meaningful conversation and greater understanding of 
the ways in which the human experience and the non-human experience in some cases <laughs> uh, fits together. So um, yes, I, I do not have a specific um, practice that I do before every one of my presentations, but now that you bring that up, I wouldn't mind if you let a brief practice for a couple of seconds to ground all of us. I don't have one myself. I mean, I, I, I do teach yoga and I do have a degree in yoga also, but yeah. I, I never thought to, to combine that with giving talks. And now that you've raised that issue, Nitin, I think I'm at a new level of consciousness about why don't I do that? So now I would like to learn one from you. Yeah. So cool. and oh, I, cool. I, have a, I have a gut feeling that I'm going to pass that to Nick. Okay. I, I feel Nick has something okay, Nick. to probably do to ground us all. All right. I look, the student becomes the teacher. I like, I like that. That's very cool. Um, well, sure. Um, I think this is actually just a great, great thing to discuss too, is the practices that we have, and Anand, you know this about yoga, it's, these are real things that we can use in our real lives. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to be yogis living in a cave. You know, mm -hmm. the three of us are yogis living in a city. And these practices are meant to get us more present so that we can understand more, we can learn more, we can listen more. So uh, I, I mean, highly suggest starting starting talks or presentations, even if I do corporate stuff, I'll start with a minute or two of grounding to, and really for myself, tell you the truth. Um, so let's, yeah, let's do that. Let's go ahead and, and close our eyes. And as we always like to say, if you're listening to this and you're driving, please don't do that. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> okay. And then take a moment here and decide, would you like to be more energized or more grounded? And if you'd like to be more energized, palms can face upwards. Or if you'd like to feel more grounded, palms can face downwards. So up to energize, down to ground. Your call, whatever's right for you in this moment, go ahead and, and start with that. And take a big deep inhale in through your nose. Open mouth, exhale to relax, to release, and to arrive into your physical body, into this moment. And from here, you can begin to find the breath that feels right to you. Not too fast, not too slow, but just right. And what is the breath that's right for you in this moment, right here, right now? How much inhale do you need to fill, to bring in? How much exhale do you need to release, to let go? And then what's that perfect pace or perfect tempo of inhale and exhale for you in this moment, right here, right now. And you know you found the breath is right for you when you feel a sense of release or relief in your mind, in your body, ultimately in your life, a sense that everything in this moment, right here, right now, is unfolding just as it's supposed to, just as it should be. This is the right place. This is the right time. You're the right place. You're the right time.
And from this deeper place or space of, of presence of awareness, feel free to set an intention in your heart of how you want to think, feel, how you want to be, how you want to show up. And you can set that intention in your heart with a big inhale in through your nose. And a nice, big, stress-relieving, open mouth exhale. When you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes, come back into the virtual space or the, the audio space that you're in, and then take a moment, notice what feels different, what's shifted, what's changed. Our screen has changed. I like that. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Nick. That was very nice. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for the offering. Appreciate it. It's nice to be able to drop into present moment and uh, see what comes through and see what wants to come through. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Um, well, Anand, can, can it sounds like you're bridging the gap between the scientific world and the spiritual world. world. Is that about right? I, I definitely think that that's an aspect of what I am working on and trying to bring together. So there's definitely it, it, to to be a, a more sort of like about like how it works. That component of the scientific and the spiritual is a solid component of what I'm trying to put together. But you can also look at it by noticing that I'm trying to put together different parts of a university, like the humanities and the sciences or the arts. Mm. So I'm trying to see it in as many dimensions as possible. Uh, a lot of the work that I do when I go to India and come back to America and bridge Indian philosophy and analytical philosophy does focus on this aspect that you're talking about. Nick. Yes. Cool. I mean, so pretty easy thing to prove, pretty easy thing to put together all these different, you know, departments and thoughts and theories. <laughs> it, 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 I think one of the things that you might not be aware of that's kind of interesting about doing this kind of work is the ways in which you find resistance and the reasons why you find resistance. So one thing I've learned oftentimes is that people themselves, when you talk to them, aren't very resistant always. They are actually quite open-minded about wanting to do stuff like this. But because a university works sort of kind of like a corporation in a way, like we have to have departments and we have to have divisions and people have to have students and people have to have majors. Because of that, people are like, well, I can't really dilute my you know, funding stream in order to allow you to just be part of it. Even though when you talk to them in a non-monetary way, they're very, a lot of people are very curious. They're like, yeah, that sounds to me like the right thing. Not. Um, I'll give you one example that's very closely related to what we just did at the beginning of this very thing by having you ground us through meditation. I'll give you a very good example. So in San Jose State University, there is a person who works in uh, the education department who works on a very similar field to what I work on in critical thinking. Um, and I was doing some research based on Indian philosophy, and he doesn't know much about how to intersect Indian philosophy with critical thinking. And so we talked one day on through Zoom, and he, we discovered all these wonderful things about how our research connects to one another. Uh, but it was just unaware to him that basically I existed because the way universities are structured is they kind of seal people off into these sort of mm -hmm. things, which is, I think, really not good for education. You should be talking to people. In different disciplines. And so what I was telling him about is a research project I've been doing for about six years now. I've published some papers on this, where what I'm trying to do is trying to show how practices within various Indian traditions like Jainism, Buddhism, 
and Hinduism that involve meditation improve our ability to communicate authentically and to think mm. critically. So a lot of my research has focused on specifically showing how different forms of meditation when intermixed with critical thinking will improve someone's ability to think critically, both in terms of auditory comprehension of what the other person is saying, the ability to capture the emotional aspect of what is being communicated, and the ability to apply formal methods in mathematics to what someone is saying in order to give an appropriate response. So if you think about the way in which public debates are held for presidential elections or vice presidential debates, the amount of conversation that really happens compared to, you know, sort of pushing each other aside verbally or name calling or not talking to them directly shows that there's a lot of issues uh, with respect to emotion regulation when mm -hmm. you're live communication with someone who's challenging your identity. And so I have thought very carefully about how to bring this component of meditation, which was part of the curriculum in ancient India, when people were learning critical thinking together in the Western educational system, because I believe it has these benefits. And so I'm now starting an experimental study at San Jose State, probably within a year and a half, where I'm actually going to run the experiments to test populations where people are doing meditation and critical thinking versus populations that are only doing critical thinking alone. But it took about six years of research to prove that actually in classical Indian philosophy, this had been going on all along. This, I mean, the, the idea that people were learning yoga or meditation without learning how to critically think is just false, historically false. Mm -hmm. Obviously true that they were doing these things in conjunction. And it's very exciting to see how these two ways that we think the mind is separated in some conversations in the West is not accurate, right? So it's not like there's like the meditative mind and there's a critical mind and these two things are polar opposites of one another. They're rather working in harmony with one another. And when you see yeah. this in, in these other traditions, you start to realize right away, wait a minute, we, we would naturally improve our ability to authentically listen to one another, communicate clearly and not have fear and not be you know, worried about what we're doing in our communication practices if we learn to conjoin these things two together. So what it's, you uh, do beginning by grounding us, I think uh, just pays, it, it goes right into that. So thank you for that again. It's, it's interesting that you, you say that. I mean, obviously Nitin and I don't live in the, the educational field. We live more in, in the corporate world. And this is the work that we're both bringing into, the, into companies, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I even love, I learned recently that the word corporation means body. So. Sure. We're, we're, we're siloing out the body into different sections, different departments, mm -hmm. which if you follow anything about health and wellness, you know that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is as I'm hearing you talk, I'm going, all of the great teachers I, I've ever met or seen, mm -hmm. they, they embody both of these things that you're talking about of this mm -hmm. highly meditative mind and like the unbelievable ability to think critically and put those together. And you sit in their presence and it's like, at least for me, I'm like, how is this person doing this? Like, I mean, I've seen a couple master teachers where they talk for hours and they don't miss a word. Mm -hmm. They don't have notes. They don't stumble. Everything is clear. And it's like the average person, even an academic professor doesn't have the ability to do this. And it's, I guess I've never realized before they're taking the, that meditative mind present moment and the ability to think creatively and dynamically and putting those into one thing that gets presented in, in, Mm -hmm. a level that's speaking to us on mental, physical, emotional, spiritual planes. And I mean, I guess as someone who's seen that, it's like, oh, that's a no brainer. Um, but I guess that's not what we're modeled or what we see a lot of times. I mean, a lot of academics are extremely intelligent, but lack EQ. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we've ran into a lot of yogis or teachers or healers that are, have a ton of EQ and a ton of skills, but they don't necessarily share that same amount of IQ. So I guess we're talking about now is blending those two mm-hmm. and being able to, what I would say is like playing with a loaded deck, like playing with more abilities mm-hmm. than the average person to listen, to hear, to feel, to, and then to reflect. Um, this is so cool. I mean, this is, this is where I, th- I see consciousness going, by the way. There's lots of books now called about conscious business. MIT wrote one. If you know Fred Kaufman's work, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's the Harvard, Harvard business just put out some stuff around this. So this, this is the tip of the iceberg, I think. But I love that you're doing this work. Um, yeah, Nitin, do you have some questions here to, to, to add in? Just a couple of thoughts that were <clears throat> coming up, you know, as, as um, Professor, you know, you were explaining like different facets of society and how we think about this stuff. I was almost imagining, like, imagine, you know, imagine a debate in the future, like a presidential debate actually starts with a meditation because we want to, you know, create a more productive conversation and not just live in the same old. Yeah, uh, that would be fascinating if something like that actually occurred. You know, I actually almost it's funny, this this vision or thought keeps coming to me from time to time of like a presidential inauguration, even starting with like a, a nationwide meditation mm-hmm. happening. Um, and like a new term for our president beginning as, as like sort of a collective nation, you know, embarking on like a journey, whether you agree or disagree with that person, but like actually the, the, you know, the symbol of what should represent an entire nation actually trying to bring everyone together, mm-hmm. versus dividing everyone. So I those think are just, it, good from both of you. So for, for Nick, one of the things that stuck in my mind is that, um, uh, you're right. Like there's like, it's like the loaded deck, like these two abilities, but yeah. the other thing which I think we have to emphasize the thing that led me to this was not the joining of the two abilities, but the enhancing of each abilities by the coupling of them. So I think what happens is that you just become a better critical thinker by meditating and your ability to focus in meditation <laughs> is improved by the ability to critically think. I think these things actually really work together. And I think that mm. with deep insight of these traditions to not separate them. I think that that was, um, mm-hmm. the thing that's, so, so when I discovered this years ago, it had been after I had spent probably close to 15 years already teaching critical thinking without ever thinking about meditation and the role that it could play in that. And then what happened was I started reading some ancient texts and saying, hey, things look a little bit different here. And then I started doing the research and being like, wow, this seems like it just totally would work and it's a great idea. And lo and behold, now a lot of people think this also and so it's the enhancing of things that I, I really feel strongly about and wanting to change in education this sort of sense that like you know we have to keep these things separate from one another and that in fact I think that they can work better together and, and can you, in, go, yeah. I was gonna say, can you explain a little bit about what you discovered because I think that would be fascinating just like oh, yeah well, absolutely yeah so so one of the things I discovered has to do with actually part of what you already said which is that there is a taxonomy in certain traditions of Indian philosophy, for example, the Nyaya tradition, where they say there are different kinds of debates and these debates have different purposes. And depending on what the purpose of the debate is, the behavior of the person and how, what is ethical in terms of how they can talk to one another, scribe. Now this same sort of idea is found in the Jain tradition also. They also say there are certain ways in which when you're having a debate, you need to talk to another person. And in fact, the first place where I found this, 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 this ancient piece of wisdom, wasn't in a, in what we would call in the West philosophical text. It was written in the Karaka Samhita, which is the original Ayurvedic text. So the original Ayurvedic text 
has a section where it talks about how doctors should talk to one another, how expertise should be translated and communicated. And in that text, there's a section where they discuss this way of seeking the truth, right, which requires a certain type of conversation. So the first point is, that's really important here is to recognize that when we think about what is the purpose of why we're communicating in terms of debate and argumentation, we are led to different views. And some of them require certain ethical behavior and some of them require another. So the one that is called VADA, V-A-D-A, is focused on truth-seeking. And I think when you were saying, wouldn't it be nice if we could have presidential debates where that was going on? Mm -hmm. and it looks like, according to some of these classical Indian texts, there isn't a VADA going on at all. There isn't a truth-seeking debate going on. There's something more like showmanship of a certain kind or, mm -hmm. or wrangling with one another or trying to like, it, the, the debate isn't really a debate about truth in a way. So, so that's the thing. So then the other thing I noticed was later was in another tradition, I was focusing on Buddhism. And I noticed that in Buddhist academies in the ancient traditions, and even now there's still some still around. I have a friend who actually worked with some people in, um, in India at one of these Buddhist schools. They practice their Buddhist meditation and they practice Buddhist critical thinking, which is pretty advanced stuff. It's pretty mm -hmm. intense to learn about the techniques that Buddhists use for critical thinking, the formal methods, that is, how to understand analogies, how to dissect an analogy, when an analogy is good, when it's okay to make a certain kind of inference. So the type of formal models of reasoning that we use in the West, in logic and in um, induction, these sort of models exist in Indian philosophy as well, except they're coupled with the training in meditation and yogic practices as well. So recently I had another discovery, which was great, is that the Sankhya tradition is kind of the root of a lot of yogic philosophy. So yoga and Sankhya were kind of sister schools for a while, and then yoga sort of went its own way. But in the Sankhya tradition, there's also this explicit discussion of the use of reason in their philosophy. And I found that fascinating. So I was like, okay, here it is again, another place where you can see this important role of reason uh, along with these techniques for asana and meditation and these things. And that's why I see that thing. So this is the things that I started to see more and more. I started to realize there's an absence of that in the way in which we teach this. And that absence is creating a problem with the proper functioning of it. I think the proper functioning of seeking truth with someone requires a lot of humility, like recognizing that you, you could be wrong, but not in a sense in which you're a bad person, but in which the sense that the amount of information that needs to be known is so high that, of course, you can't know it all and you need other people to work with you. So I felt that sort of sense of like, wow, maybe these practices of meditation help us understand the emotional feelings we're having when we're defending a position and maybe how we're reacting badly or fallaciously reasoning or becoming too. And again, I, I don't want you to feel that what I'm saying is that emotions in reasoning are bad. So another false dichotomy that I see a lot these days is that, oh, you're becoming too emotional. This I don't think this is great advice at all. I mean, whatever you guys might agree to say, want to say, I think this is very bad. This is the downplaying of the relevance of emotions as if rationality sits one place and emotions sit another place. Again, it's a disjointed model that comes from mm -hmm. Plato and Western philosophy. In Western philosophy, we can trace this, this dichotomy to Plato, actually. It goes right on through all the way through human Kant. So this re reason versus emotion sort of battle seems inappropriate to me. It's sort of like, how do you use your emotions with your reason together so you can hear someone properly because you're emotionally empathically engaged with them? So I feel like this, this, this sort of preening meditation into critical thinking and understanding the emotional component of what we're trying to track 
makes us better thinkers when we think about the purpose of what we're aiming for. So I really want to learn the truth and I want to get at the truth. And that's, that, that's a hard business. That's, that's not easy. It's going to require a bunch of people trying to work together, really wanting to listen to one another and really caring about a certain sort of goal. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And now I, I, I see it everywhere. And I, it's sort of, it's one of the projects I work on. I, every two years, I basically go to another tradition and find something about critical thinking and then try and write a paper and publish it and support it. But at this stage, the main thing I've accomplished is basically showing that within Jainism, Hinduism, especially in the Nyaya tradition and in um, Sankhya and in Buddhism, you can find good reason to think that meditation and empathic engagement coupled with critical thinking are going to improve it. I remember... Actually, one of the things, uh, you know, as you were talking about this, you know, the fact that there's even a say a question about whether critical thinking is present in, in these sort of traditions or not. One of the the pictures that would always come back to me um, is you would actually I, rem- I don't remember where I saw this, but it's quite prevalent where, you know, so- say someone within the Buddhist tradition or any of the, the Hindu uh, sort of religious traditions would claim that, oh, I'm enlightened. And they actually have to go and debate mm. with 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 the folks that are like sort of the heads of these traditions and prove yeah. that they're actually enlightened. And they go through this like series of questions and debates, and it's like insanely intense. I remember seeing like just a a, a portion of this somewhere at one point. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, I know I know that like critical thinking is so deeply intertwined, but yet it's so also then mixed with the mysticism of being enlightened, right? Yes. And like this, this outer dimension, which is hard to, hard to actually explain logically at times, mm-hmm. but, they, but they somehow still try to do it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and manage it. Uh, Vedanta is another example. I know like within Vedanta, like I remember once going to a, a lecture there and it was just, oh man, the amount of critical thinking and, a hundred ways that they divide an argument and try to reason truth out of it, you can go crazy. Yeah. Uh, so it's quite, quite out there. Yeah. Um, so one thing that can connect back up to what Nick was saying uh, early on about people saying things and maybe uh, and different and then the coming together and the coupling of these abilities too is uh, at a certain point in time, we have to recognize that a lot of what has come to the wider world Maybe it's better to do with an analogy right off the bat. So for some people, you know, you talk about Italian food, they think about pizza and pasta, right? That's Mm -hmm. what's going to come to their mind, right? Pizza and pasta. But really, I mean, come on. Italian food is far more complex and interesting than pizza and pasta. Pizza and pasta are great, but pizza and pasta are not everything, man, in Italian food. There's some amazing things going on. Just the other day, I learned about Italian lentil soup. It's amazing. It's just as good as dal. So this is a good analogy for a lot of Indian philosophies understood through the eyes of Vedanta and yoga. Those mm-hmm. are the primary things. They're great. They're wonderful, like pizza and pasta. But the thing is, they're not everything. There are at least seven other schools we need to think about. And mm-hmm. within the Vedanta tradition, there are at least four different schools that disagree with Adi Sankacharya. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. And a lot of that stuff is also applicable to our practical lives in a very important way. So when we see this thing, we can learn that one of the things that oftentimes we're seeing is that people think that the world is organized into mysticism coming from India, two traditions particularly, and, uh, and, and science, basically. And so science gives us one thing, and these Indian traditions, along with other 
traditions around the world give us some form of mysticism, but they're not really the same thing. And, and this is good. So I'll get back to Nitin's point because he's talking about something I'm actually writing about right now. But the, the first thing I wanted to just dispel is that it's really not healthy for and true to the facts about India, and I, I'm pretty sure about other traditions also, that there is nothing going on other than mysticism and yoga. These are wonderful things, but like pizza and pasta, but <laughs> there are other things that we need to respect too. And so if you look in these other traditions, which I've been doing now for a decade uh, and studying with people, you will see that there are a lot of intricate things. And this is what Nitin is pointing to. So if you look at Sankacharya, someone who was the father of Advaita Vedanta in a lot of ways, and was probably one of the most popular forms of Indian philosophy, it's like saying, a margarita pizza is like the big thing to go for in pizza. Um, it's just not true that he wrote in this way in which there wasn't strong logical argumentation for many points. He was a master of argumentation and he debated people in the, in the, in the, in the various schools in Nalanda. He debated a lot of, he debated a lot of Buddhists, for example. And there's this, there's a famous story, which is not true in my opinion, that the Buddhists left India because Sankacharya beat them in logical argumentation. In a famous battle. I don't believe this is true, but it's, it's <laughs> there's far more other reasons they probably left and other things more important about what they were doing. But they say this anyway. So, um, uh, but the point is, yeah, these two things come together. And I, I really want to help in my research and my teaching for people to see both sides of this coin in a very helpful way. Now, now onto this point about mysticism that you made, I, I want to talk about something. So it is important that, um, that some of the people who had mystical experiences also had to debate with people. Because mm -hmm. according to some schools of Indian philosophy, there are two types of knowledge. And this is the part I'm writing about right now. I'm writing a paper on this topic. There is a type of perceptual knowledge, okay? And then there's a type of thing that's called a certified knowledge, okay? Certified knowledge. So if you have an experience of a certain kind that gives you enlightenment, let's say, then that gives you one kind of knowledge but it doesn't give you the other type of knowledge, which is called certified knowledge. In order to have certified knowledge, one of the commonest features that people will discuss is that you debated with other people who can then certify that you had that knowledge, that you had that experience, right? So this is, this is why you probably, in wherever you encountered it, were seeing that the, these people would have these experiences, but then they also had to do, because there's two modes of knowing. So this is not a common distinction found in the Western tradition, but this is pretty common discussed at least in the Nyaya tradition and I bet in other aspects of Indian philosophy these two types of knowledge right the one that's the experience that's a direct connection to something and then the thing that happens with other people through certification which requires debate and argumentation so that might have been what you were picking up on is that there Fascinating. Were, yeah I think something like that yeah yeah that that helped that's helping me connect the dots of what was going on there I think what's what's so interesting here as a practitioner of, of yoga, it's and we all know this, yoga means union mm -hmm. or to be yoked. And it's but everything you've just described is about there being a disconnect mm -hmm. about things not being in union. So it's 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 just so to me it seems like so obvious. It's like the tradition is saying mm -hmm. this means union. We're bringing mm -hmm. everything together, like I'm leaving the 99 to go get the one. Like that's in, that's in the Bible. All these traditions are saying the same thing, more or less. Like nothing's outside of ourself. We're all connected. There's one universal truth. And we have infinite paths or lineages or systems to get us to knowingness, mm -hmm. to get us to our own knowingness. Um, but yet as humans, we, 
this is what makes us so unique about the human experience is we all want to be right. <laughs> we all want our path to be the true one. Um, but if we, I think if we look at what these lineages are saying, they're all saying more or less the same thing. They're not really arguing with each other. It's us as humans that are trying to make one religion better than or one philosophy <laughs> less than. And that's, this is the debate. Um, but if we look at the basics, it's about connecting and bringing in all of ourselves. I just don't understand why I wouldn't want to bring in my meditative mind and my yeah, cognitive mind right. and my and and my emotions mm -hmm. and my access to spirituality to then make a whole 360 degree decision where I'm making decisions from my head, my heart and my guts and then putting those all into one container or the chakras. We can even go there. And now I'm going to use all seven chakras to make a more enlightened present moment um, and just make a better decision. That's gonna, I, and if I live from there, won't my life be better? Won't my interactions be better? Won't I have more positive impact? Won't the people around me that I interact with, won't they experience that? So I guess it's, I understand it, but also from a, from a basicness, I'm like, gosh, this is, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, why are we making this so fucking hard on ourselves when we could really just slow down and, and pull from whatever field we want to, to help us understand ourselves more? to make our human experience better and to, and then bring that out into the world and share that and teach that. And I guess that's why we're teaching this. Mm -hmm. We've been doing this for, for decades now and, and on, you know, multiple decades. Um, so I don't want to sound elitist here. I don't want to sound like well, this I don't is stuff we should know, but it's like, this is, this is pretty simple. And I think we can get this if we slow down and we listen to each other and we, we just go, wow okay, well, I can access all this stuff and bring it in. It's not, a, I don't think you should worry about feeling elitist. I don't think it's elitist at all. I think the thing that uh, that might help uh, is a little switch in orientation. Mm. When something is a very familiar, uh, it's hard to sometimes see it as a question. This is something I learned in philosophy very young when I was young, because sometimes philosophy is taking what is obvious and turning it into the most knotted thing on planet earth that's what we do mm. sometimes but 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 what, what i see here that's valuable is that um it's be probably because I, I walk in a lot of different circles with a lot of different people with different orientations that i can see bringing things into question in a lot of ways some of the fundamental assumptions of the yogic practice and of vedanta that are sick there are fundamentally things that people disagree strongly about and i have done lots of research on this especially in relationship to theories of consciousness coming out of the yoga and the Vedanta. So something you might take to be very obvious is something that can be put into strong disagreement by other people working in other areas. It's only by walking around and seeking truth through confrontation with other perspectives that you can come to understand that how much things. So as much as I might say, hey, I, I really think that this idea found in yoga and Vedanta is just obviously true. As soon as I go walk around to some of the other people, it's not seeming that way to them. So, mm -hmm. so I think it's perfectly non-elitist of you to be uh, saying what you're saying because for you, certain things are more familiar. And because I push myself to go constantly into different uh, groups of people and to understand with them and work with them and to talk with them and be like, hey, I understand why things are different. That's a little bit why. So one, that's one thing I just, I really, mm -hmm. I don't want you to feel like you're being elitist. Yeah. The thing that you said that is, I think really important is that you emphasize this in the beginning is that it's true. There is something that Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy. And he wrote a book about this. He was a, he was a writer. He wrote uh, 1984, I think, did Aldous Huxley? Yeah, he wrote 1984. 
And he also wrote some other stuff. Um, but uh, Aldous Huxley wrote this thing called The Perennial Philosophy. And basically, in this thing, he made an argument, which is very close to what, Nick, you're getting at, which is this idea that if you look at all these different traditions, there can be these superficial things that look like they're not in common. But if you dig deeper, if you really do the work and track things out, there seems to be a very simple common theme about oneness that's going on. And so you can, you can see this movement. And this is actually a big part of what is in Advaita Vedanta because it's a monistic tradition. So this, this oneness uh, that is tied to being, which is tied to God, is, is definitely found in this one tradition. Mm -hmm. For sure. It's not found in all the other ones, by the way, but it's found in this one, for sure. And so, so there is that thing where there's a commonality that you can break through the superficial dissimilarities and you can find this common theme. And it has become more popular recently. Uh, I would say the perennial philosophy has been making a, a return, at least in, in the circles I work in, about the last maybe four or five years, a lot more attention has been brought back to it. So I, I think you're right to tap into that. Um, but I, I definitely think... When what do you, you think is leading to that? Um, hmm, that's a good question. And for me, I didn't, didn't think about that. Part of it is because you're asking that question where the answer I'm going to give you about why I think it's coming back uh, is disconnected from the larger issue you're raising. So here's the answer. I think it's coming back in some of the circles I work on because Advaita Vedanta itself is making a comeback in studies of consciousness as a leading or a contender. I've written myself a couple of articles about its prospects and what I think can actually work. So, and that has a strong connection to the perennial philosophy. In the work of some philosophers, perennial philosophy just means what Advaita Vedanta is talking about, uh, even though Aldous Huxley talked about many other traditions. Um, so that's one thing. But that, but I feel like, Nathan, you're actually asking the question that goes beyond that, which is like, is there a phenomenon or experience that people are having in the world in different parts, which makes them come to think, hey, there's this larger oneness that we all part of. That thing I didn't reflect on, so I apologize. That's a very good thing I should learn to reflect on that aspect of what you're asking. I think that's very important. And now that I think about it, I think there is something there. And I think it's something that I don't think comes necessarily from focusing on the text of Advaita Vedanta. It becomes focuses more on the commonality of something the, the Buddhist kind of cornered the market on. It's suffering, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were as you were talking. I was thinking, yeah, that's it. My money's on. We're not fulfilled as a people. We're not fulfilled mm -hmm. as a species. And now we're going. Okay, I did all of these things. Mm -hmm. I went to school. I got a degree. I did well. I got a good job. I was a good boy. I was a good girl. And I'm still miserable. Like, mm -hmm. what the hell? So as you were talking, oh, I'm going. God. It's, it's got to be suffering because mm -hmm. we're, yeah. we're doing what we're told, and it's not working. And mm -hmm. now it's happening at exponential rates, we have more access to anything than we've ever wanted in our lives. And we're not happy. I don't have to leave my house. I don't have to leave my house to survive and thrive. And I'm mm -hmm. still not happy. It's like, well, mm -hmm. then there must be something deeper in us that's not being fulfilled or triggered or satiated. And we're going, well, if it's not in the Western world, maybe it's in the Eastern world. Maybe it's in philosophy. Maybe it's in consciousness. And that's what, as you're talking, that's what I was getting the hit on. Yeah. I think I think that's so. To, if I take Nitin's question in this larger sense, I definitely think Nick that I agree with you. I think it's suffering. There's some aspect of the mode of suffering, and I can actually go a tiny bit deeper on this point about suffering, so that you can see something. Um, so, in behavioral economics, there is a study that is well known. It's a pretty well known phenomenon. 
you increase the number of choices, you decrease the satisfaction with any given choice, right? So this is the 31 flavors problem, basically. So what's mm -hmm. going on is like, yeah, is the kid really happy more with vanilla when he chooses it out of 31 flavors? Or is he better with vanilla when he chooses it out of just chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry, okay? It turns out that he's going to be happier when it's just three choices. So access to the visibility of opportunity. We see a bunch of opportunities out there. We see more out there. We have access to more. And maybe even we have higher availability through corporate structures like Amazon to things that we, we probably couldn't have got 50 years ago. But given all this more stuff, it might be the case that now anything we select, we're less happy with. So there's actually mm -hmm. a behavioral econ thing here that I actually think works here. But, but underlying that behavioral econ thing, I think, Nick, you're tapping into the one that seems really like from our hearts, which is, I think, what Nathan is getting at. Like, like, what is the thing that we were all sensing that makes us think that there's this, I think it, it, I would answer Nathan's question. Maybe, Nathan, I'm taking your question the wrong way, so please correct me if I'm taking it wrong, but I think Nick is right. I was just genuinely curious, frankly. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it. I think some of the same theme, the, uh, themes ring yeah. true for me as well. I mean, you know, what comes to my mind is like, we just went through a global pandemic. I mean, frankly, in many ways, we're still in it. And maybe there's other ones starting because we keep hearing of these other names popping up. And then there's like also the issue of climate change, which, you know, as more and more of the world is experiencing, you know, real events, it's starting to, in, in my opinion, from my vantage point, and of course, I live, breathe in, uh, live in this all day long. It's starting to bring the world together in a different way because now there's like a grounding problem or you know space of suffering that's common to us all as a humanity and not just any one culture or any one country. So that's where my head was. But I was also just genuinely curious if you felt like in, within the philosophical realm something was kind of driving toward. So let's 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 talk a little bit about that because I think that's one of the things that I've been focused on too. So. The, the moral grounding problem, just to make it clear to the audience and to everyone, is simply the idea that there is three options and we are focused on one of them more than the other. So moral universalism is the idea that everything that exists has moral properties, has moral status. It's something that has moral, there's some moral status to it. It's something that has to be taken seriously within the realm of morality. And then moral nihilism is the view that nothing has moral status, okay? So the third view is uh, that there's a moral sphere, that some things don't fall in the moral sphere and some things do fall in the moral sphere. And so the moral grounding problem is the question, what is the root of the things that fall in the circle? What makes it the case that something falls in the circle and isn't outside the circle, right? So mm -hmm. in, in, in certain classical Indian philosophies, this line is drawn one way. In certain Western philosophies, it's drawn a different way. And so what I've been doing over the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic, I would say my research increased in this area, is I've been looking at and teaching a class, actually. Nathan, you'd probably love this class. This class is all about answering this question by going through suffering, free will, uh, self-awareness, self-knowledge, consciousness, types of consciousness. And basically, I go through the class, and each week I say, is this the answer? Okay, if this is the answer, then how come these people are being left out? Or how come this creature is being left out? So in one sense, you can think of it as going from amoeba to AI. You can think of it as going from um, grass to gorillas, you know, whatever you want to do. It's like, mm -hmm. where is that thing and how do we cut that thing? I read a, 
I read a really interesting uh, line on your website where it said, hey, if a, if a robot is conscious, can you turn it is off? it okay to turn it off? Yeah. So that was, that was basically, that was before what happened recently with the Google Lambda AI case, if you know that one. That's one I also just gave a talk on a week ago. But I did, I did write an article two years ago or three years ago now on this topic because that's kind of what the class is about. And, but the thing is, I want to make sure that because we brought up this issue about the planet suffering and about us going through the pandemic, that this question about the robots is so closely connected to the thing about the planet. So one thing, one question people can say is that, look, um, I don't think the planet is conscious and consciousness is what gives you the moral sphere. So the planet doesn't have in and of itself any moral status, right? And then other people in other traditions will be like, well, you're Christian. Other people are gonna be like, no, that's definitely wrong. The planet is conscious, <laughs> right? And so there's a question of what are the kinds of things so, so just so that you understand, like, even though that paper was written as a popular article about robots, the really underlying issue is what are the things that fall into this? And whenever someone from a tradition says it's just obvious that this does, it's important to look at these other traditions to see how they are not seeing that and how maybe we can bring ourselves to, uh, together on that issue. But I think for people who are concerned about the planet, there are lots of people who still don't understand why we would give status or what it means to give moral status to nature. And also the question that oftentimes arises is, is the motivation to give nature, like the, we'll talk about the nature and planet interchangeably here, is it selfish? Is it that it has rights because we need it to function better for us to function better? Or does it have rights intrinsically? Right? This is the contrast, right? Is it a relational uh, thing that gives it rights or is it an intrinsic thing? And some people who are the extreme version will say nature has rights intrinsically. If humans didn't exist, if animals didn't exist, whatever it would be that was there at some distant time ago in the evolution of the earth, it would still have rights. It would still have moral sense. What does that mean exactly? Some people are confused about, but that's, that's what the question is. So I just wanted to make sure that everyone understood that. But I do think this is an important issue and I think right now we're suffering sort of with this dilemma of like having to understand, like, how do we think about a robot having rights or how do we think about a planet having rights or how do we think about a tree having rights? And so one of the things I've been working on and thinking a lot about is these what I call pairwise comparisons where you take one thing. So, you know, so someone might say, hey, you know why humans have rights? It's because they can argue really well. You know, argumentation and rationality, that's what really matters. If you want to be in the moral sphere, you better, you better be, you better be able to argue. And that's why kids don't have as much moral standing as adults, because adults can rationalize and kids can't. Kids are emotional and they're subject to their desires. This is all platonic baggage from Plato. Not that he was a bad guy, but Plato said a lot of cool things, but this is baggage coming from that thing. But the, the fact is, bees argue with one another about which location they should fly to, right? This is one of my favorite things. And the other day I was just talking to someone about a type of um, wolf that also howls with other wolves in order to discuss which location to go to. So is it really the case that we're the only things that argue? Mm -hmm. I don't really know about that. Right? Maybe we can do certain mathematical problems that other species can't do consciously, but mm -hmm. why would the mathematical ability make us all of a sudden be part of the, the moral sphere? It seems like that's like a hyper, like it seems like the part about rationality that mattered wasn't that we could do math, but that we could discuss things with one another. <laughs> it just seems so. It just seems so egocentric too. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what, what yeah, humans yeah. are getting to decide what's in the sphere yeah. and what isn't. It's. I mean, as you're talking through, you know, 
we bring it back to the spiritual lens, I'm going, okay, either everything is conscious or nothing is conscious. That's right. That's a one. That's, I mean, this pen then has as much consciousness as, as the three of us in terms of consciousness. And it's like, and that's what Samkhya is saying, right? It's like everything is coming from Brahma mm -hmm. and it's coming down into Prakriti and Purusha. And, and it's like, okay, once it moves over into the physical form, it now has consciousness. And, and each time we judge and each time we separate and label and name, we start to separate that out into this world being disconnected. And it's like, well, we could sit here and argue all day about what's conscious and what isn't. And it's like, who, who's giving humans the rights to then decide that? That sounds like our ego and our I don't think it's framework. An issue. I don't think that that's the, the right way to see it. I mean, it's not yeah. about ego here. It's, it's a, this is a... This is a technical problem that actually we need to investigate theoretically like we investigate things in quantum physics. Like we need to understand like what we are drawing. So mm -hmm. the fact that like, so one answer is this, we don't have the right to tell other things whether they have moral status or not. I don't have any right to tell a deer, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't think hard about why society draws a certain distinction. I mean, I'm, sure. I'm talking to other people who are drawing a distinction Hey, we could think better about this. Not that, like, you know, like, like the world right. works in a way where we do make laws. So the thing is, I, I'm, I'm speaking to an audience of people, but I do, I do see that, like, if you're saying, hey, we should, we shouldn't be the people thinking about this uh, and thinking like our answer is the ultimate answer when we're just one among money. That's a different critique, which I think you're right about. You're right yeah. that like, whatever answer we give will ultimately be perspectival to whoever is giving it in that sense, and, and then we shouldn't be like elevating it too much, but. If you want to say like that no one should think about this, I feel like that's really bad because the world is going in a bad direction without people thinking very critically about why we should think of nature as having rights and why that could change our practices and our things. So I definitely feel that way. Yeah. I don't mean to be. The, like, oh, it's just for me. I, I love this conversation because for me, it's like the second we step into consciousness, for yeah. me, the conversation changes. And okay, it's like, what do you think it changes, Nick? Uh, I think it, it gets, it, then it moves into non judgment, then it moves into oh, cool. that. All of all views are correct in the sense of the person who thinks that everything's in the moral sphere is correct. The person who thinks that nothing is in the moral sphere is correct. And then also the person who thinks that it's varied and all the 99 different variations in there become the truth for that person. They become yeah. and and inherently nothing. I, I believe inherently nothing is right or wrong as we're talking from consciousness, not maybe from human personality. That, that's different. Um, and then all of those become truths that we then can hold because they're different for each and every one of us. And there's one universal truth. So I think as the converse, the conversation to me just gets so big mm. and undefinable. Um, and this is again, from a conscious lens of non-judgment of the three of us all have different beliefs on pr probably everything, which inherently aren't right or wrong. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, this is, it just opens the conversations up so much at this point for me. I wonder what you guys well, think about, about that. A little bit. So one of the things I think that's, so the recent talk I gave, I think will help Nick with this, with the, maybe appeasing or helping you under, see like how we can have like, uh, we can bring things together better. And I mm -hmm. think this will, this will help a lot. So one of the things I've noticed in my research and in talking with many people is that we begin with this idea of consciousness. And then what happens is that people end up accidentally talking past each other because there's more than one sense of the word. And I think mm -hmm. it's what it's, and this is exactly what I think led to all the confusion about the Google Lambda thing, because people didn't really understand that there are multiple concepts of consciousness coming from multiple different traditions. So for example, what 
uh, a yogi or Sankhya person thinks is not the same as an Advaita Vedanta person. The perspective that you're echoing from Jainism is not the same as the Anaya one. The one that comes from uh, cognitive neuroscience is very different. So once we delineate the specific notion, then we can track the feature you're going for. So mm. one thing that I think is helpful, Nick, is when you want to talk about consciousness in this way, what are some of the important things that are, it sounds to me like non-judgment is one of them. Like we're not judging. Uh, mm -hmm. There's perspectival acceptance in the sense that each human being is a center who's giving an idea and that center holds for them in the way in which they're experiencing something. Is that correct, Nick? Yeah, and I guess even on top of that, I love the, the line that, I think it's from the Theosophical Society, that the center of consciousness is everywhere and its, its diameter is nowhere. So oh yeah, yeah. Each, yeah. Each and every one of us is the center of consciousness. I think that's echoing what you're saying now about yeah. it's, it's yeah. consciousness is relation to where you are, where you're looking from. Okay. Um, and okay. it's, and it's everywhere in all, all places at the same time. Good. So, so good. So, so this is very helpful. So if we now talk about this definition of consciousness, we'll call it uh, consciousness N for Nick, right? So I just mm -hmm. give it a label yeah. for a moment. Perfect. This is very different than someone who is distinguishing, for example, between what's known as phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness. This is also different from dual consciousness and non-dual consciousness. This is also different from actually the distinction between Purusha and Prakriti, which is actually mm -hmm. the dualist tradition. Sankhya is a dualist tradition, not a monistic tradition. So there. So now if we go through and we start saying, okay, I think what happens is we get a lot more uh, communication that's going in the direction of the purpose when we like sort of delineate a little bit about what we're getting at. So now that you've claimed, explained the notion that you're using with, I can tell you that the one that I was using, it, it has to do with the distinction between phenomenal access, dual and non-dual. And that is the con combination of taking work from uh, a philosopher at, at NYU who works in cognitive science and philosophy and an ancient Indian idea and putting them together into a matrix of four options. But none of these ideas correlate directly to what you were talking about. You were talking about a different sense. And so then it's not the case that we're actually disagreeing with one another. We were just in a moment where we didn't understand each other's definitions. Yeah. When I'm talking about whether Google Lambda is conscious and people were saying, is he sentient and what's going on with this thing? I was concerned with whether or not it had what's known as a relationship between artificial general intelligence and access consciousness, but not phenomenal consciousness. I was con I'm concerned with that connection because some people think that the kind of consciousness that puts you in the moral sphere is only phenomenal consciousness, which means that you have the capacity for phenomenology. So if you have the emotion of love, people want to say that the emotion of love has a cognitive component, but it also has a very like spiritual and like, like feeling component, feels some way to love someone that it doesn't feel when you hate someone. And so there's a cognitive component, like a, a ju thought, judgment in a different sense, not judgment in as in judging someone, judgment in the sense of there's a like a content, there's like a, a thought there, that's what they mean. And so I was using it in a different sense. That this sense is not inconsistent with what you're saying. So the way you're talking about it is more expansive in this idea of being of, um, so sometimes I use the word, it's everywhere and nowhere. I love that, I love that. but I also yeah. like another one, it's polycentric. That's kind of a cool idea too. Polycentered, yeah. multiple centered, right? So we're each a center, but then we're, we're kind of like all the centers too, also in that interesting way. So it's an interesting, I, I like that notion. Too. And I think what's what's really cool here that, that we just modeled is mm -hmm. this kind of brings it back to the first thing we were talking about of can we get leaders to sit together in a room mm -hmm. and hear each other mm -hmm. and not 
debate, but actually have a conversation. And I, and I think what we've, we just modeled right there is we moved away from, we're not necessarily trying to agree mm-hmm. because I don't think that's what we should be doing. There's 8 billion people on the planet. We're not going to all agree, right. but what, what can we do? We can understand each other through right. conversation and then yeah. we can define, Oh, for me, this is what consciousness yes. means. for yes. you. This is what it means for Nitin, This is what it means. And that's where we go. Oh, wow. We all have a different viewpoint yeah. of consciousness yeah. from our angle yeah. and mine isn't inherently right or wrong. It's just what's right for me in the moment. That's the meditation we started with, by the way, what's the breakfast right for you in the moment. And it's like, wow, now, now I feel like all three of us plus everyone listening has a deeper understanding of consciousness. Oh, there's not one definition. There's in essence, infinite definitions of consciousness. Uh, And it's like, wow. Yeah. And very much reminds me of uh, why I enjoyed my philosophy classes so much today. Yeah, I want to say one more thing to Nick. Nick, thank you very much for bringing this back to that point. Because one thing that's that's like true to my heart, like in the sense of like who I think I want to be all the time, is I seek understanding. I do philosophy because I like to understand things in in, in deeper ways. And by deeper, I don't mean anything elitist. I mean more connection. Mm-hmm. I just literally mean more connections. So for me, a lot of what motivated me to get into philosophy as a kid is I was very curious and I sought more understanding about things. And I don't have any like thing where like, I hate this kind of thing. I just want to understand more and see the connection. And I think you're right. Like when people expecting everyone to agree is probably not a good idea, but helping that people can understand one another better. I think that's a, we should be aiming for that. That's, that's going to bring less suffering. That's going to bring a greater ability to empathize is to try and speak from the voice of understanding, be curious about others. So I'm just like curious about greater connection. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good, good, right. Good. And also authentic connections, I think, are, are manufactured through understanding. And then I just say one thing. So one of the reasons, Nitin, if you, Nick, if you have time later, you might be interested in is this whole idea of perspectival reasoning and stuff like that is actually a foundational component of the Jain philosophy. They call it anekantavada, non-one-sidedness. And I've done a lot of research on this. And, and I think, you, Nick, actually, if you've never read about this, you would love it because they explicitly... Yeah. They lay out this principle as a way of thinking about things. And it's interesting to learn about like how different ways of modeling this behavior can help people gain the greater understanding because it gets rid of like this sense of egoness. Like it's about me being right. It's, it, but it gets us to think, hey, I can understand more by doing things this way. Yeah, I, I really value that. I wonder, I wonder if there's something that I've just put together on my own through 15 years of studying yoga now. And, you know, they come in, yoga starts with the yamas, the niyamas, right? And in essence, Patanjali comes in and you guys know this, and he gives us a code of ethics and morals and, and a way to live and treat each other. And I've realized I don't need those anymore, right? It's mm-hmm. like almost like, okay, those are kind of like level one and then we throw them away. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, people are like, well, what do you mean? You don't have a code of ethics? It's like, well, no, not really because... When I can get to the place of I am you, you are me, I don't need a code of ethics. I don't need someone or something to tell me how to interact with the world. Because if I love myself and if I, if I believe that I am you, if everything is consciousness, then it's like, wow, well, then the only way I would treat you with would be respect and understanding and love and compassion. Um, and now, am I in that space all the time? No. And But can we learn to expand that out and kind of like you said Anand, of like this is how i want to be this is how i want to continue to show up and i just think it's interesting when i can get to that place of it's difficult non-dualism that i well i don't need someone to tell me how to live i of course i want to understand you and support you mm-hmm. and, and love you and that's 
I think that's where we can really bring in a lot of this stuff to make this world a better place. And, and it's, you had something to add? As you're saying, it's difficult, you know, because it's, you know, look at the amount of global crises and all kinds of stuff that's happening today. And there's a lot of people in, in tons of pain, you know, so people often a, a mode of survival is actually trying to create a wall around you and, and separate that suffering mm -hmm. from you so that you here in this moment can be okay. Um, if everything became, I am you, you are me, you know, some folks may, may interpret it as like, wow, like, no, I can't handle all this stuff that's now mm. coming at me. It's just too much. So I think that can happen once you build a level of skill set, maybe, you know, maybe that's what's considered enlightenment is that you can be one with all, but yet be okay with it all and be able to like mm -hmm. live through it all. But for, for many folks, survival, you know, comes down to being able to create those walls so that you mm -hmm. only have a limited emotional boundary that you have to deal mm -hmm. with. Uh, that's uh, super yeah. insightfulness, and I think that's absolutely spot on. And, and one of the reasons why I think that that makes a lot of sense is because there's a phenomenon called emotional contagion, where you catch an emotional response from someone simply by observing their bodily behavior and feeling it, right? So you become sad, just like, so the most common phenomenon of contagion is yawning. When one person yawns, another yeah. person yawns, it just happens. But, but it can happen with emotions too. So your explanation makes a lot of sense to me in the following way. If someone can't handle the pain of everyone who just suffered through a flood, then what's going to happen is by dropping that wall, the emotional contagion is just going to make them feel it all. And it's too much. Mm -hmm. Only someone who has evolved to a high degree to feel the pain of others can drop those walls. That kind of makes sense to me in the way in which it just works as a uh, a, a psychological phenomenon, but also in terms of what would have to hold for you to be able to feel that much. And then, so I think that's really insightful. And then Nick also wanted to say that um, it's interesting to think about the way you analyzed the, the, the yamas and niyamas. I like that a lot, actually. So you kind of have like what's what I, I think of as the training wheels model. Like the mm -hmm. idea that basically these things are things that help us early in our yogic practices. But as we actually unify the eight steps, as, as, as because it's not really that it's supposed to be like, oh, step one, step two, and then all of a sudden you're at the end. It's kind of, it actually functions in a horizontal interconnected mm -hmm. way. <laughs> it's not like you do niyamas and yamas, and then all of a sudden, you know, you get to enlightenment. Yeah. No, it's kind perfect. of more like parallel steps are happening. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. what it feels like experientially. That's like this, it's integrated. Yeah, so the vertical verticalization of many of these things is a bad understanding. It's both same with the eight steps in the Buddhist uh, eightfold path. It's not vertical. These are all horizontal interconnected things. So that's obviously, I think, the right way to go. So the training wheels model makes a lot of sense because the person who has practiced these other things in a certain sense doesn't have conscious thoughts about following a yama or neon. They're not thinking, mm -hmm. I have to abstain from this now, don't do that. It's more becomes second nature to them because it's in a, in a way these things function like Aristotle's virtue ethics also. They're habits that are cultivated over time. And those habits have two pr properties. One property is that you more naturally behave in the way that the explicit rule was guiding you towards. But then also there's this other cool thing which happens is the effect of the combination of those things eventually accrues inside of you. So I think it mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense, Nick, what you said to me to, to think of it like, yeah, once you have gotten to that higher state, that you're not thinking with the thing anymore. You're just, you're being, right? And then, and also you probably evolved enough to feel the, the pain of others and not have to put up walls, hopefully. I think that's, that's capacity is the word that I would use there that Nitin's referring to. And, and as you are too, it's like we build capacity over time through our practices and through conversations and through a willingness to listen and learn and, and, and be vulnerable. And then you go, Oh, wow, I've grown. 
last year I couldn't have heard that or last year I couldn't have mm-hmm. had this conversation or I wouldn't have been open to that. Now, wow, now I am. Okay, mm-hmm. and now you, you increase your capacity mm-hmm. and then you can you, you know, remember when you ask for more on the conscious path, you get, you get more and more doesn't mean good or bad. It means more. And you go, oh, shit, I wasn't ready for that. I just mm-hmm. judged that or I just took that personal or you know, I made that person wrong. It's like, okay, reset. Great, uh, insight. It's almost like it makes me wonder almost like uh, you know, if our work here is to help increase capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, I think so. Fundamentally be able to help people be able to connect with more, mm-hmm. understand more, be one with more, and you know, in the process be one with themselves in a way. Yeah, I also I also feel like one of the things that Nick touched on that was really uh, should be emphasized more is this. Um, it's something also that is uh, from the early part of the conversation today. It's this listening thing, which is a big problem. Like we have in education, I'll give you an insight that perturbs me to know. And is that we have now this, everyone has to be there active learning. This is active learning you've got to go do. And like, um, and, and, and sometimes what they think is like you know, passive learning is when the teacher is lecturing to you and you're listening. And I'm like, this is the worst understanding of the philosophy of auditory perception I have ever heard. You're actively listening. You don't passively listen. There is action going on. If you're attentively listening and focusing, it's kind of actually, uh, it's just that you, you, what you've done is you've taken listening and you've disembodied it you, you thought mm-hmm. somehow listening was this disembodied thing and you were like oh we're going to beat up on people lecturing and this disembodied thing but um no that doesn't make any sense that's not what's going on, on, on at all unless we're defining listening as uh, people multitasking while they're pretending to listen that's true but that but, then I think that, <laughs> but that helps actually Nitin, because what that means is then is that people have misunderstood now how attention is used in multitasking and they have, but you're right. Right. So what they've, they've thought is like coupling different activities. So it's not a rant against active learning. It's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of thing where I'm like, but, but, but listening is a very important thing. And, and it's because Nick brought this up. I think it's important to emphasize oftentimes we're just not listening to each other in a very deep sense where we're hearing the emotion behind what they say the feeling, the motivation, the real worry. We're parsing the semantics. We're listening to what we can respond to, but we're not really. And I think really listening is the key to understanding. It's also insightful for me to point out that the word Upanishad means to sit down and listen. It's wow. It means to sit what, down. What's, so what's landing for me right now is you know, we went the original piece we talked about of how mm-hmm. does mindfulness and meditation improve cognitive, be, yeah. you know, cognitive health or behavior? It's like, well... The key to listening is not thinking. Mm-hmm. That is the key to deep listening is to not think. I ask a question and I shut up and I listen instead mm-hmm. of what you were just saying of, oh, how do I come back? What's the better answer? What's the right mm-hmm. thing to say? No, actually by not thinking is how we listen. So meditation trains us to think less. So then it's like, oh, then meditation becomes the perfect tool to mm-hmm. increase I, yes, retention right. and active listening. It's like, Oh, that's a good one. That's like peanut butter and jelly right there. <laughs> or a sandwich. It could also be a chutney sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever sandwich is right for you, you know, make that one. Fun, real quick, funny story. I was this morning, I was, I'm taking a coaching course and it was 730 to 930. And I was like, you know what? I'm not feeling it. So I just put the, the teacher's voice on and I was sleeping. I heard about 50% of the lecture, by the way. 
and I was, so, you know, I think I would have gotten in trouble for active listening. It was like, no, I was listening actually in a couple different ways. Yeah. And I got the gist of what she was saying. Cause I was kind of mm -hmm. in between consciousness and unconsciousness and it mm -hmm. was coming through without thought. It's like, Oh, I got it. Got most of it. That's, good what, that's you know, one. Hey. I, I, I <laughs> the same thing. So I have to take a, I take my Sanskrit Indian philosophy classes on India time at five 30 in the morning. And I cannot get, <laughs> so basically I listen to the lecture live uh, while you know, closing my eyes and just focusing and being in that in-between state. Yeah. I think but I, I just wanted to say two things. Which I, which I really like what you had to say, Nick, and I wanted to like engage it in a, in a way. This is another one of those moments where I think we're subtly like talking past each other, but agreeing deeply about what's important. So I wouldn't have said that meditation shuts down thinking. I would have been more, been more open to the idea that meditation stops certain kinds of thoughts, but I don't think it shuts off thinking. I think it's very, hard to shut off thinking. And I also think that in the case when you're listening, it's kind of a little bit closer to what um, Nitin was said that my feelings go towards. It's the idea that you aren't shutting down the thinking, but you're stopping these sort of processes like forward thinking or multitasking. Mm -hmm. You're bringing your attention more to bear, right? And so you're shutting down the presence of thoughts that ruin your attention. The attention part in listening is I think where you get the real authentic stuff when you're attending completely emotionally and empathically. That's the presence part, Nick, that you're talking about. I think it's presence through attention and emotion. So I'm, I'm more open to the phrase in my own language of saying things like what the meditation is doing is it's taking away from things that are attentionally sort of moving your mind away and it's getting you to focus. And I would focus yeah. on but I think deep down inside, you've made the connection, Nick. Now you've said, hey, obviously this is the peanut butter and jelly because what's happening here is that this connection is going to be the thing that links across. And I think that that's right. I just wish somehow that I was able to convince more educational people of the value of this. But Nick, it's not yeah. an battle. It's, well, is one there... of my, as, as one of my uh, famous uh, mentors at work once mentioned, we've got two ears and one mouth and we should really use them in that ratio. <laughs> might be one way to put it across pretty good that's a good way to do it i'm gonna borrow that one the next time i have to go to one of these meetings and talk about yeah. it anand i'm wondering i'm wondering for you and your research is is are you familiar with the mind model that they present in the in the sutras um i don't know it under that name probably it's, that's in mind so there, there's the there's four the things manas right we've got yeah. chitta we've got the ahamkara mm -hmm. and then we've got um Buddhi. Yeah. Right. And those are the four. And I'm wondering for you if there's some research there and oh, yeah. if that's oh, yeah. a frame, that's a framework. That's really a scientific framework that's showing, that's, okay, as I, as we decrease the amount of noise and input in, yeah. we can then start to listen to the mind more, get yeah. to know it better, mm -hmm. calm it, yeah. release fears, doubts, identity, so that we can then hear more and connect to God and source. Yeah, more. So I'm just wondering if that is something I where you can. I don't know it under that name, but I know all yeah. of the things that I have a paper on artificial intelligence and yoga and samkhya, where I talk oh. about ahamkara, buddhi, uh, chitta, and um, uh, uh, manas. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, and so I like, I, I do a lot of work on uh, manas. I actually like manas. I've written a paper on Vaita Vedanta on that. But the thing that was interesting to me is I don't, I'm not, I'm not exactly having the same reaction to samkhya the way you put it. So I'm a little bit more in the readings where what happens is that uh, buddhi, ahamkara, and uh, manas are part of prakriti in Sankhya, mm -hmm. but actually pure consciousness is not, it's in Purusha. So the, the thing yeah, is that sure. so, so the way in which this is interesting is because when you apply their model to artificial intelligence, 
a Sankhya philosopher would probably be like, yeah, of course it has a mind. Yeah, it's obvious it has a mind. What it doesn't have is this specific sense of consciousness tied to Purusha, right? Mm -hmm. So while Western philosophers are trying to argue about whether or not AI is conscious, in a sense it's related to the mental functions of the mind, it doesn't turn out that Sankhya philosophers would have that problem. They'd be like, you're confused. The thing that nature has, Prakriti understood as nature in a global sense, what Prakriti has is ahamkara, manas, and buddhi. It has those things. What it lacks is the consciousness that comes from purusha, because every human being is a combination of Prakriti and purusha. So that's where I, I'm very interested in actually this model. I've never heard it called the mind model. Um, but that I might be a translation. Yeah, I've, I'm aware of those distinctions. And I, yeah. I, I think this is a very useful way to think about things, especially when it comes to attention and philosophy of mind. I, I'm very much on board with that. Yeah. Yeah, rad. Love it. And thanks for, uh, thanks for improving my Sanskrit. It's, it's, no, it's shouty at best. I don't, I, I don't have good Sanskrit <laughs> at all, man. I, I, I just listen to it a lot, <laughs> so I have to. And I like to listen to it. Actually, that's one thing you guys might like. Are, Nick or, and Nitin, are you into Sanskrit chanting because of the vibrational yeah. properties of yeah. Sanskrit terms? Yeah, I'm actually supposed to be learning uh, the Sri Shukta, but I've, I have been avoiding that like the plague because it's 16 verses and I'm just like, Oh man. So if you got something to help with that, send it over. I don't know. That's, that stuff is tough, but there are, there are two groups of friends. I have one group of friend are textual Sanskrits who will sit there and parse your writing and all this stuff and read stuff. Now another group of friends who are chanters. And it's so funny because it's the same dichotomy again. Like the people who were doing this stuff were all chanting and writing. I mean, like, why do we have these groups of people who do one thing and don't do the other thing? It's so disconnected. And like, they even laugh at each other. They're like, oh my God, yeah, he's gonna chant now. They're like, oh my God, he's gonna parse the text. <laughs> they have different purposes. The chanters care about the meaning of what's going on, but they really care about the vibrational properties that Sanskrit as a language has. Well, the people who are translating don't care so much about the vibrational things. They care about literally what these people are saying in the meaning and how the theories connect up and stuff like that. And so it's, it's very interesting, but I feel that I've definitely heard my friends lament the fact that they know traditionally they were both coupled together, right? And that now it's disconnected in this way. They, they say the same thing. So I feel like this reunification is a theme in our conversation again. That's very important, yeah. like bringing things together and helping People see that we have these artificial distinctions that are largely formed on the basis of people thinking, hey, this person has to have only that job and this person has to only do that. And he has to be specialized in this way. We live in a society where everyone has to be an expert of something in order to have a job. And, and, and that's so artificial to the truth behind what's really going on. These things were meant to be done together, I believe. I believe what I've learned. Yeah, there's a lot of delineation into various streams of thoughts and actions, right? So, mm -hmm. but if the planet is conscious, it's all happening as part of that one conscious being. <laughs> Back there ontologically. Specialized right? cells. Like know. we're all centers of some expertise, but if we're all part of one whole thing, then you're right. That whole thing has got it all. <laughs> that, yeah. So that's the, in, the individuality within the totality is what one of my teachers would say. Yeah. Well, Nick, did I tell you this was going to be a fascinating conversation? You did. You did. <laughs> um, and I don't think we've ever actually gone this much over time.
Oh, sorry. Oh, did I go? Okay. No, no nothing to sorry about. I'm just saying it's just such. Re- I've, yeah. I've, I'm pretty sure we could keep talking for another three. Yeah, hours you, you, you got, got myth, and you, I remember how much you remember. But man, like I, I, I this is my job. I'm, after this, I'm going to go read this book on Indian philosophy, self thought and reality. Yeah. Go back. I'm going to keep reading. Going. You're going to go all day today. We're we're talking about capacity. I'm just like I remember. Yeah. <laughs> like, you the capacity of your brain to actually have these conversations is just immense. Uh, anytime you guys want to talk, I'm happy. To <laughs> we go get a sandwich together and sit in the park. Yeah. And then let's talk. I'm let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, especially you guys are both in San Francisco, so you should definitely make it happen. Yeah, I can um, make it happen. Yeah. I'll probably try and come by your studio at some point. I do a lot of yoga, but it'd be nice to see oh. what you're Yeah, I let me know. People in the yoga community in SF, but it'd be nice to get to know you better and see what's up at your studio, too. We'll, yeah, we'll, totally. save, yeah. our, we'll save our personal details for post podcast. <laughs> okay. um, but it was so amazing. Thank you guys. Uh, speaking Thank you with you, well. Professor. Yeah, this was this was a fascinating conversation. If anything, I'm taking away is just like again, core concepts of listening, understanding, building our own capacity to be able to actually, you know, understand others and then and yeah, in, in that process, elevating our own consciousness, right? That's, that's what this that's what this is all about. So thank you for for actually yeah. just taking us through such a powerful conversation with so many competing perspectives, but yet it comes down to basics at the end. Mm-hmm. I agree. Thank you very much, Mr. and Nick. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. That was awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening in. If you want any more information about our guests today, uh, about any of the sessions or, or offerings that were presented, uh, as well as about myself, Nitin, or Nick here. You can find all the links to our websites and how to get in touch with us through the episode notes. And as always, don't forget, if you like what you heard, share it with friends and family, spread the love, spread the collective consciousness, and help us raise the consciousness as a whole.